0: good evening everyone good evening good evening good evening welcome we're glad that you're here certainly say that to our visitors we're thankful for your presence Romans chapter 4 is where we are in our study last week we were talking about Abraham the father of the faithful the father of faith for everybody for the Jew and for the Gentile We looked at several good questions that they asked among them were What advantage then hath the Jew? And are we better than they? And is he the God of the Jews only? And Abraham and David would agree with the apostle Paul that a man is justified by faith. Both of those individuals found that in their own lives. Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. And David speaks of the man to whom God does not impute iniquity. His sins are forgiven. His transgressions are covered. And God does not take into account, does not hold anything against that man. We were, I believe, down and around verses 18 to 22 is where I have us stopping. I'm open for uh, confirmation on that, though. I see heads nodding. Somebody said close enough for government work, so we'll go with it. We were there in about verse 18 talking about Abraham's faith. There's a return to that discussion, and he says, let's just read that section. In Hope Against Hope, that's verse 18, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was credit to him as righteousness. Before I forget or go further, Vanessa is not feeling well, and that's why she's not here this evening. I didn't do it this <laughs> There seemed to be some suspicion in your eyes, like, uh, this wasn't me. Verse 18, Abraham believed, and Paul has been saying that throughout the entire chapter. Uh, he says, uh, Abraham hoped against hope. Uh, he was not weak in faith. This idea of hoping against hope, I think, has to do with the appearance of things. It looked hopeless. To the human eye and the human condition, it would appear hopeless a man as old as Abraham whose body is dead a woman as old as Sarah who's past the age of bearing or past childbearing These two individuals having a child seems hopeless and it would be were it not for the promises of God Abraham Paul says did not waver he did not waver in unbelief in fact he grew stronger in faith and he says He was fully persuaded. That's Bible faith. Why was he so persuaded? Verse 21 is the answer. He was fully persuaded or fully assured that what God had promised, he, that he is not Abraham. Abraham is persuaded that what God promised, he, was able to perform it would be mo- it would be difficult to get a better concept of faith when everything appears one way and on the other side you have god's word and even though you have not seen the completion what you're trusting is him if he said it then no matter what the appearance is, I believe him. I am fully persuaded that what he promised, he is able to perform. May I just suggest, if you are ever asked, are you going to heaven, to start with him, not you. Usually when people answer the question, they say, I hope so. I am trying. If I, and if I, and if I. Where's God in that? Your faith in getting to heaven is not in you. Your faith in getting to heaven is in Him. He will perform what He promised. What has He promised? You obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your sins will be forgiven. How many? All of them. And then you keep walking in the light, you walk right on in the glory. That's what He promised. So then the answer is in him, it's not in us. Abraham's faith is not in him, it's in God. And that's really what God is asking relative to faith. Hebrews 11 and six says, but without faith it's impossible to please him. Well, why is it impossible to please him without faith? For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It's the very same thing. You're being asked to trust that if he said it, two things. He can do it and he will do it. In order to struggle with unbelief, you have to lack belief in one of those things. Either you believe he can't do it It's too hard for him. He can't do that. Or you have to believe he can, but he won't. He said it, but he won't follow through. And this is why it's impossible to have a relationship with him without this, because he won't have it. He won't accept that. He won't say it's okay to doubt me. He won't say it's okay to doubt my power, and it's okay to doubt my character. He won't accept that. In fact, what he will say is, it's impossible for us to have a relationship. Abraham, with far less revelation than we have, believed. What do you believe? God said it. Go back and read Genesis 12, read Genesis 15. He kept saying it. Look at the stars. Try to count the sand. This is what it's going to be. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. He became the friend of God. Verse 21 is the reason for that. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Look at Hebrews 11, 11, because a similar thing there said about Sarah. Faith, after all, is personal. And they both had it, which is why 1 Peter 3 would talk about those um, women who live like Sarah being daughters of Sarah. The same way John 8 talks about being sons of Abraham. Hebrews eleven eleven says, By faith even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Well, Sarah believed it too. They both believed. Therefore, verse 22, all of the above, it was credited to him as righteousness, it's not belief without action. It's action based on belief would be a better way to understand that. The action, don't, they don't justify apart from belief, and that's what Paul keeps addressing. If the works justified, it would take away the grace and faith. It would then be by debt and by law, and Abraham didn't find that, Romans 4, 1 to 5. But the belief was not perfected without the action. That's James 2, 20 to 24. And so Genesis 22 is that which James uses the language uh, perfects or made perfect is when faith was done, when the works were accomplished, that God instituted. Abraham believed God, God gave him a son. Abraham believed God would bless the world through his son. And so when God asked for his son, you know, sometimes people read Genesis 22 and they say things like, I couldn't have done that. And I would ask, why not? If you had the faith of Abraham, you could. Why couldn't you give him your son? Here's what happened. God said, I'm going to give you a son, Genesis 12. And then 25 years later, God gave him a son. And then at some point in their relationship, God asked for the son back. How is God going to bless the whole world? That would be through the seed of Abraham. Now, what has God asked you to do? Kill the seed. If you kill the seed, how's the world going to be blessed? So Abraham believed God would make him stand again. That's what Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 to 19 says. You know, you have the same faith. If God said it, you believe it, right? Yes, no, maybe so. I mean, that's what it is. God said it, so that's why we'll do it. Doesn't matter if I can see it. If he said it, it will work out just the way he said. It. Chapter 4, the end of that chapter, 23, 24, 25. This is a great conclusion of these thoughts that began way back in chapter 2 or 3. Now, for, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised jesus our lord from the dead he was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification god had a plan and a purpose behind all that he did with for abraham and this is part of it the first century saints are struggling guess what they're struggling with? Faith. And now here Paul says, God had this penned for you. It wasn't just for Abraham's sake. He had this written for your sake because it will be credited to you the same way it was credited to him. What did they need? Faith they needed to hold on to Jesus. They need to trust in God. They need to rely on the decision they made to become Christians, and it was now being threatened. Did we make the right decision? Should we give up and go back to Judaism? Should we get circumcised if we're the Gentiles? What do you need? Faith. Paul says, this wasn't written for Abraham's sake that it was credited. But for our sake also, now when you and I read the word our, we typically think, those of us in the room today, but you should scale back 2,000 years and let the people who read the letter read the word our first. It's written for our sake. By extension, well, I suppose us too. Later in this book, chapter 15 and verse 4, Paul will say, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. This is one of the things that were written aforetime. And Paul says here, it was done so that we would know, they would know, that they would also be credited by being possessors of the same faith. He was delivered, speaking of Jesus, delivered for or because of our transgressions. He was raised for because of our justification. Jesus is, again, the answer for all of these things. Paul, in this section, summarizes the first four chapters. Let's review very quickly Chapter 1 and 2, sin is the problem. The Gentiles sin, God gave them up. They gave God up. He gave them up. The Jews sin, chapter 2, you are inexcusable, old man. Whosoever you are, that judges another. you do the same things. Chapter 3, verse 9, verse 23, all are under sin. If all are under sin, how does anybody get out? Chapter 3, 24, 25, 26, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in christ jesus abraham our father what did he find the exact same thing abraham didn't work his way he believed god and it was credited to him chapter four but also david david under the law lived a faithful life a life of trusting in god and believing in god and that brings us to chapter five for now Having discussed justification, he opens up this section by saying, therefore, having been justified. So now that they understand justification, having understood it, these first five verses, Paul says, again, we're justified by faith. Then he talks about God's great love for us, and you can see that. While we were sinners was this grace given. Again, another fact emphasizing you couldn't have worked your way out because it was done while you were in sin. And then, verses 12 to 21, he talks about Adam and the Christ. Having been justified by Jesus, chapter 4, 24, 25, chapter 3, 24, 25, justified freely, justified by grace, not by works, it was credited, the first five verses of chapter 5, the benefits and blessings then of being justified. Therefore, having been justified by faith, What do we have? He begins immediately to tell them, here's what you're in possession of. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because of the love of God who has, uh, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us number one verse number one what did they have he says they had peace with god this is the whole point of justification because in sin we are at enmity to use the language in the king james and ephesians 2 we are at enmity hostility with god such is the nature of sin it makes one in opposition to god it is not a neutral thing it's not an indifferent thing We were enemies of God, is how he will say it here, 6, 7, and 8. We were God's enemies. Well, the whole point of justification is God gives us peace. It's God, the one who is offended, who makes the provisions for peace to be shared. The Gentiles were under sin. The Jews were under sin. Notice that language in Ephesians 2. Let's read a few verses there. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse number 1, Paul says in verse number 1 of chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. When you're reading passages like this, can I encourage you to look at words like your and you and us and we and hear the same apostle talking about Jews and Gentiles? So when Paul says that, and you, well, he's talking to the Ephesian Christians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what they were. He says, you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, rather, he says, among we too. Well, if the you is the, the saints in Ephesus, who is the we? That would be the Jews. Paul is a Jew, their former life, chapter 2 of Romans, the Gentiles' former life, chapter 1 of Romans. And so he says, we too all formerly walked or lived in the lust of our flesh indulging desires of the flesh and of the mind, or by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This is the language of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Three times that word is used, exalt, rejoice, glory. Three times, uh, verse number three or two here, and then again in verse three, and each time it's used in different things. So the end of verse two says we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3 says, not only this, we also exalt in our tribulations. Down in verse number 11, he says, not only this, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We, he says, we have this hope of glory. Glory in tribulations, it introduces or reminds us of the context, the saints are suffering. They're suffering for the cause of Christ. The Jewish Christians were suffering at the hands of their Jewish countrymen, uh, and they feel very strongly about Paul as well. Exalting could be done because they would triumph. They will win. Their side is the right side. God will triumph. In the background, I would urge Jerusalem will be destroyed. They will come out of that and be glorified. They will win even though, again, it may not look that way. They could glory in this hope that they had. Verse number 3, they could also rejoice or glory in these tribulations. It's not rejoicing for the sake of tribulations. It's rejoicing for what the tribulations can produce. And he immediately says that, knowing that tribulation brings about, depending on rendering endurance, Patience, perseverance, that ability to suffer under, endure, and continue to go forward. The very things that happen in a physical body when we're trying to improve, we put the body under strain, we put the body under stress, we harm to some degree the body to produce endurance, How do you become a person who can swim further distances? You get in the pool and you hurt a while until you can swim. How do you become a runner who can run longer distances? You have to start running. You You can walk to run, but at some point the body has to be put under the stress and under the strain so that it can create and endure. That's the way it happens. What happens for so many people physically and spiritually, is that they want the results of the pain, but they don't want the pain. And how does that work out? Not well. Imagine if I could take, reach inside of my body and pull my soul out and set it here. What scripture does, it talks about both of these men in the exact same way. It describes them the same. It says they have the same needs. And it says there are two things that God has given for each of them to function and to be. This man will function in God's world and this man will function in God's word. Both need to eat. Eat. And so the Bible will describe God's word as food. Both need to drink. And so Jesus will say his word is water, living water, and meat, bread from heaven. He is the bread from heaven. Got to eat him. It'll say that. And then the apostle Paul will talk about running a race. Which man? He's talking about that man. They'll use words like endurance. Which man? talking about that man growing not talking about this man they're talking about that man and every concept you can imagine that involves a physical body there is a spiritual counterpart that the words are used seamlessly they don't have new words the apostle paul says here in verse number three perseverance proven character that's not a physical thing it's not my body character how does persevent this is for the soul proven character hope my physical body is not hoping that's my inward man hoping the hope does not disappoint because i love this is james will use similar language Count it all joy my brethren when you fall into diverse trials knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience endurance but Let patience have her perfect work that you may be complete, entire, lacking in nothing. This man needs to grow as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. He's talking to adult people. He's not talking to babies, except he's talking to their soul. And he is saying, like a baby craves physical milk, your spiritual man needs to crave the word of God. How else will he grow? You can imagine then that I could be healthy physically and unfit and unhealthy spiritually. And since the spiritual man controls the physical man, that would explain what immaturity looks like when it comes out of my mouth, when you see it in my anger. When you see it in my temperament when you see it in my selfishness these are not physical attributes that is an ungrown unhealthy spiritually immature soul doing that because that's got control of the body Paul says this these sufferings it's not like you're rejoicing because you're suffering that's nobody's crazy we're not asking for punishment But spiritually speaking, the faith that's tried is the faith that gets a chance to grow. For now, stress is being applied. Difficulty, hardship. Now, will I be like Jesus? Hard to do that when I just walk around and there's no stress in my life. It's, It's difficult. can be done. needs to be done. I'm not begging for stress. In fact, let me read you the prayer that I pray. It's over here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I wouldn't want you to get confused that I go around asking for trouble. I'd rather not. <laughs> I just soon walk on the other side of the street if I know trouble's on the other side. I ain't got no friend with trouble. I'll just move. That's no problem for me. First Timothy chapter 2, here's my prayer. First of all, I urge prayer, supplications, intercessions, giving the thanks we made for all men, for kings, for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and... Peaceful life and all godliness, for this is well-pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Sometimes people make a mistake at what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting to you, let's go find some trouble and pursue it. No, what I'm saying is, you and I should understand that there's no way to grow this faith without us putting it under. Now, for them, somebody else is bringing the trouble, Peter talks about the fiery trial, Paul talks about the present distress, somebody else is bringing it to them. But nevertheless, you could just as well grow your faith without these outside stressors. You just have to choose. And I will tell you, it is more difficult, more stressful, more straining to read your Bible than watch Netflix. It's just tougher. It's just tougher. One of them will grow your faith, one of them will entertain. Am I bad on, I'm down, not down on entertainment, I'm not. I'm just saying this is how you would have to do it. You've got to give up something. If you're going to be a runner, if you're going to live, what you've got to do something. You've got to do it. You don't need these outside stressors to do it. You can do it. All right, five, the uh, end of verse number five says, because of the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, Uh, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let me suggest that this is not the book where we learn how they receive the Spirit. You'll notice that his audience has the Spirit. He says to them, who's been given to us? If we were going to undertake that study, we'd have another study altogether. Paul simply states it as being the case and i would urge that the work of the holy spirit actually is in the old testament first and then the new testament you can see his work in the old testament take a passage like second samuel 23 2 where david says the spirit of the lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue david is a prophet according to acts chapter 2 And therefore, David, speaking prophetically, says he got that from the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord spake through me. And you'll notice that David attributes the words to the possession of the Spirit. His words were in my tongue. Hard to get a better passage on inspiration than that one. But that would be a different study. I'm simply suggesting to you here that the audience had the Holy Spirit, and the Apostle Paul says God has given him to us we began in verse number six down to verse number 12 a return to the theme and how justification came for while we were still helpless at the right time christ died for the ungodly for one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps for the good man some would even dare to die but god demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we, have, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. For while we were still helpless, Paul's point all along has been you were already in sin, and so you were in need of God's grace. And so he has made that case, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, with Abraham, and now he states it in a very succinct way here in verses six, seven, and eight. How would one try to insert works in verses six, seven, and eight? How would one try to insert law keeping in six, seven, and eight? It is, an ex- it, it is a very short but comprehensive statement about the first four chapters, really. He opens by saying, while we were still helpless, in other words, we were without strength. There was nothing we could do. We just read Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins you walked in it you gentiles we walked in it us jews how did we get out well we didn't get out on our own because while we were yet helpless at the right time christ died for the ungodly the gesture is from god the grace is from god god moves first that's really what grace is God extending himself toward us while we're helpless. It is an offer. It is an invitation. Grace alone cannot save. Now, you cannot be saved without grace. But grace alone cannot save because grace is God's invitation to you. It's an offer of pardon. But God is the one who gives conditions. And those conditions have to be met as a means of trusting him. And that's why it's always grace and faith. And what you will find right between them is whatever God wants you to trust him to do. Now, this changes throughout Scripture, and it's the only thing that changes. If your name is Noah and you live in the time of Genesis 6, then What you will be asked to do is build an ark, but you will be only asked to build that ark after God gives His grace, verse 8. And then God will tell you to build an ark. And then if you trust Him and build the ark, then God will save you. Well, what if you're Joshua? You won't be told to build an ark, but you will need grace first, and then you will be told march around the city. And if you trust God and do that in the manner in which he prescribed, then God will knock down the walls. What if your name is Naaman? You won't be told to build an ark, and you won't be told to march around the city, but you will be told to go to the Jordan and dip seven times. You will be given God's grace, and then you must do what he says, and if you trust him and do it, then your leprosy will be cleansed. You could fast forward that to Pentecost. You are given God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ and what are you told repent and be baptized and if you trust him and do that then God will save you nothing has changed about the way God saves men except the specific commands in which he delivers per the incidents that he engages in but now that the gospel is for the whole world then it's god's grace in jesus the gospel and then your faith in jesus and in god to do what he says and everybody can be saved but there is no other way verse number seven one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps a good man someone would even dare to die there may have been examples through human history where somebody was so good and their life was threatened somebody said take me Scarcely. But God didn't find good men. God didn't find righteous men. God found ungodly men. Verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. I would emphasize while we were yet sinners. What would be the implication for what they presently are when they receive the letter? not sinners but while we were Christ died for the ungodly the Bible is just wonderful in that it always seems to be more by way of what God offers like if God had only offered salvation and nothing else would we have all taken it just salvation nothing else just the cake, no frosting. Just the donut, no jelly. If God had just offered salvation, that would be sufficient. But God never seems to just offer any one thing. There's always and. There seems to be always more. In fact, that's how verse 9 opens. Much more than. I would ask, what could be much more than 6, 7, and 8? If you were figuring it out, we were ungodly sinners. And the word ungodly does not mean not godlike. That's not what it means. It means impious. It means we, humanity, Jew, Gentile, looked at God, and for all of the glory that he is, we took that and lowered it and profaned it. We were ungodly. We were impious. We treated him with ill regard. That's Romans 1. They exchanged God. The Jews did not honor God. That's the way this works. And in that state, God died for us, or God sent Christ to die for us. And then verse 9 opens with much more then. It's a pivot from sinners to saints. And if you're a child of God, I would urge For you not to feel that Christ dying while you were a sinner was the zenith, because that's not. Otherwise, verse 9 can't begin with much more then. But for those individuals who have left that state and become his children, please don't be comfortable with God's love when you were his enemy and hostile and ungodly and a sinner. And then become uncomfortable with it when you're his child and a saint. And so many of God's children love this side of the podium. They love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Love it. Thank God. He died, sent Jesus. We were as worse as we could be, as low as scum. That's right. And what did he do? He sent his son and he died for us. Amen, amen, amen. And you obeyed the gospel. Thank the Lord. I put you over here. And now you get to come to his family. You get to be a part of his children. You are part of his inheritance. And now what happens? I'm not sure if he loves me at all. Because what you do over here is suddenly turn the relationship right back into a works-based system. You come over here and do the exact thing Paul has been working against the whole book. And now how are you going to keep his love? Well if you keep the law. How are you going to keep his love? You do everything right. How are you going to keep his love? Now wait a minute. You were his enemy. How did you get his love over here? You know, maybe, just maybe, I would suggest that when you and I think about the love of God, we don't think about ourselves first, because it's not about us. The love of God is a statement about God, and I would really urge for us all to separate God from his creation and put humanity in the world over here and turn your attention to him and what and who he is. And what and who he is, is simply being expressed to humanity. But humanity is not driving who he is. John says God is love, which is why he would express it while you're a sinner. But Paul would write, okay then, having expressed it to you as a sinner, now you're his child. So what would that love do now? Let me ask it another way. You ever been to uh, going to a school or something and you're going where your children are at school or at play and you've seen other little children running about? You could pick yours out, couldn't you? You ever took cupcakes to the kids? Donuts to the kids? You ever seen the kids playing on the ground? Would you help one of them up if they fell down? What would you do for yours? Pick them up? Blow on the knee, <sighs> that mama's breath love, what would dad do if, if to his? Coach him up, and you'd help the other ones because you love all the kids, but now yours is something different. Listen to 9, 10, and 11. Much more than now, having been justified by his blood, what's going to happen? Come on now, do you even believe you're reading the words in your Bible? Are they there? What does yours say? We shall be saved from the wrath of God, the very thing his children fear the most. And it seems as if the Holy Spirit had first century saints in mind who might struggle and future generations who might struggle because he actually explains it. Verse number 11 explains the entire conversation. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through nothing less than the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be by his life, much more, two times. And verse 11 is a flat-out explanation. It would be impossible to miss it. Verse number 11, did I suggest that there was more? Because Paul says, and not only this, not only this, but we also exalt in God through our lord jesus christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation you notice words like justified reconciled and reconciliation you you see those words being repeated up here paul is describing a walk over here and then he is describing a transition to a new walk over here. And this is an act done one time, and the person is credited with righteousness. This is now the state of the person. This is what they walk in. This is what they live in. This is who they are. They are a child of God. They are a son of God. They are justified. It is not the intention of Scripture that you take words like justified, reconciled, and then move a person like this. That's not the intention. We have been saved, delivered. We have been justified. We have been reconciled. And that's a one-time action. That's not intended to be waffled back and forth. That's not intended for that. I really would like to just stop right there, but I won't. (laughs) I won't. I'll go on and say it because we need to say it. It is the case that a person could choose to walk away but please understand that person would have to change his heart pivot and start a new walk back and then in and continue that's not every christian every day of their lives we Have to teach the possibility of apostasy because the scriptures teach it. But the possibility should not be thought of as probability. We teach it almost in a way that a person cannot be certain here ever. The fact that it's possible does not suggest. Let me ask, let me say it another way. For those of you who have children, multiple children in your home or you reared up multiple children, was it possible that every one of them would rebel and turn against you? Possible. It's possible. But you didn't live every day of your life thinking, boy, they are in here and out of here. You didn't do that. Yeah, it's possible that a child of God could walk away from him. But that doesn't speak at all to the faithful life of the myriads of Christians who never contemplate even beginning to walk away from him. They just struggle in their growth and maturation. That's a world apart, a world apart. And it's necessary to teach. But I would urge you, go back and see the examples of apostasy and see what's being described. It's not faithful people struggling to grow. Those people are. Go back to Romans. Oh man, look at there. (laughs) Did you look at there? (laughs) Well, our time is up. (laughs) Well, we. Let's pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank you for this day and for all of your bountiful blessings. We are so grateful, Father, for your love and for your mercy and for your grace. We're so thankful for who you are, so thankful for your power and your might and your majesty, your glory. Thankful, Father, for your holiness and thankful for your love and your creation of the world and of us in your image. So thankful, Father, that you care so much for us. So thankful that you revealed your will and your way, this great mystery of yours and your grace and faith in your your word. Thankful that we can read it and study it, grow thereby and be benefited, encouraged, edified. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus while we were yet sinners. And thank you, Father, for the gospel that forgives all of our sins. So thankful for Jesus and his blood. Pray, Father, that we will live In a way that brings glory to your name, but in great rejoicing of the abundant grace and salvation that you have provided. We're thankful for this congregation, thankful for those who are visiting. Pray your blessings upon each one and pray that you'll be with us, Father, and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.